Song. The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant, 7 to 10 a.m. Choice of our guest presenter, Kanti Pai, economist and founding director of Nation Advisory and Research, Umsebenzi, where to our work. Well, our work in the next 55 minutes is going to be to talk about uh, the economy in different ways. Uh, Kanti is a columnist for South Africa's Business Day and the Daily Maverick. You may have seen uh, what he has written over the past and we'll be looking at things like what we think equity, equality and justice really are and how we can shift those conversations. I must say his choice of book is someone that we have interviewed here on the show and uh, that we hold in great esteem because of her very very interesting approach to how we build economies as well. 10 past 9, you're with SFM 104 to 107. The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant. 10 minutes past nine. Don't forget at 10 o'clock we have KG with Seasons and she will take you through to one o'clock today. On the line with us is our guest presenter, Kanti Pai, economist and founding director of Nation Advisory and Research. Kanti, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good morning, Michelle. Uh, it's so wonderful to talk to you and good morning to um, uh, FM listeners. Kanti, I feel like I need to throw myself right in because there's so much I've been thinking about with regards to what you do and what we're thinking about in the world. I have to Uh say that even last night I started dreaming about different economies, and I kid you not, I I think it may be the fact that I was at school for the last three days and we might have been talking about (laughs) it, but I wasn't sure if it was our interview that was coming up or uh, what I'd been thinking about. But I want to start with something which you have raised in one of your columns, and I want to start sort of right there. Equality, equity, and justice. There are different ways of looking at it and looking at the concept of equity and equality, and each one of them is different. And I wonder if you could explain them in layman's terms for our listeners. Of course. (laughs) I didn't think I would be... um uh, doing a lecture this yep. morning, but um, come on I in. Think, <laughs> <laughs> I think when we think about um, equality, um, you know, I've always thought about it as a more of a. Um, a, a it, it is probably a, 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 a more of an economic um, term um, that allows us to think about, and actually maybe a legal and a social term that allows us to think about the status of people um, uh, as they relate to each other. Yes. Uh, in the sense that, you know, we are all equal, we are born equal, so we are at the same level. So, you know, we may, my mother used to say, you know, look at these fingers. They're not the same, they're not equal. But even though they may be different sizes, they are still thought of as equal yes. because they share equal status while they may be of different sizes. Yeah. I think that's an important um, distinction um, in the way actually our economy works, but maybe we'll talk about this later. 
Whereas equity is a uh, probably a <laughs> um, a reflection, I guess, of um, in our sense at least, uh, a reflection of where, um, where people have been and where they are going. So we think in this hmm. country we talk about equity in the sense that we look at where different people are and they're supposed to be equal. And so we think about equity so that actually it's an aspiration now kind of thing. Um, that's not the right, right definition, but in the ways I think about equity, it's almost like a, a relative thing in which we look back yes. and we look ahead and we say we seek equity um, so that people actually, you know, in the way we share things, in the way we are, in the way we relate to each other. So those are the things I think about it in the sense that we have to have a thing that we think is important, which is equality and it's almost, almost legalistic, and then equity, which is probably the more economic type and social aspiration. So those two do not um, stand alone. I mean, if you're going to look at it as a triumvirate, the third part of that triumvirate then becomes justice. Talk to us about that for yourself. Well, I, uh, it's difficult for me um, to talk about justice because I guess we have a, you know, I, it's one of those things I've always thought about as, you know, you know it when you see it. You know, a lot mm. of us have a, almost an innate sense of justice. This kind of thing that, you know, something is just, even uh, is unjust, even though, for example, it may be legal. Yes. This sense of a moral sense of what is right and what should be and what should not be. Yeah. Um, and so justice is that thing where we think this is right, this feels right, this should be, and if it's unjust, it should not be and it should not have happened in that sense. So, so you know, Glanty, I know I kind of threw you in the deep end or uh, uh, in with that particular question to start off with. But the reason I wanted to start off with the idea of thinking about equality, equity and justice is that it is something that you've written about and you, you, you've written about it in, in a variety of terms as well. And I think it does frame uh, the journey that we might take in this country and that we should be taking and that we should have taken in this country as we move forward. And what, what it did for me is it made me think about your upbringing I understand from what I read that you were raised in the Eastern Cape. Your mother was a domestic worker. And it made me think those are issues that were intrinsically tied into your world. And I wondered how they then threaded their way through to who you are today as an economist. Well, I think, <laughs> I mean, I, I was always going to be an accountant. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, and then I did very badly on accounting, and luckily yeah. I landed up in an economics class. Yeah. And so that, um, but I think in a, um, you know, it's one of the most, I suspect, is a subject everybody is an economist because they have a sense of how things work, really. Mm. It is, you know, it's about how things work, um, not so much a science, but it is about actually a social science, how we think about our world um, exchange things. So for me, it is a way of thinking, almost like a language, uh, in which we actually relate to each other. And I think that's why um, the problems we are facing now, um, we are struggling to to overcome them because of the language that we're using to define those things. Yes. So the economic language, the way in which we define things, and we say, you know, whether we are talking about um, the exchange rate, the economy, inequality, or, you know, in those problems. So 
I think that becoming an economist was, um, was it's, it's a way of thinking, really. Um, the way of, for me, seeing the world um, and defining things, and almost actually very intensely connected to how people relate to each other. I mean, yeah. I guess, um, you know, the way we relate to each other and the way the world is and the way it well, should be, um, and really a way of thinking about um, the structure of our world and the way we as human beings relate to one another. That's how I mostly think about it. And so in the way uh, growing up and the way, you know, the way we are um, progressing, one of the things I always think about is always about the many, many factors that combine together, some of which people would say, you know, are disadvantages, that actually are quite advantages, and some of them are advantages that are disadvantages. Those collection of structures and issues and uh, events that led to something great in the end. You know, um, Kanti, I love the idea when you talk about the economy as a social science and um, what's critical in that way of thinking is that I think that perhaps we always assume that when we think about the economy, we have to hand over to those who have the title or the academics. But if you are the gogo who is selling um, fruit or tomatoes or whatever on uh, the, at the side of the road or at a work site, maybe you're selling eggs, you are working in economics all the time. I mean, you, you're looking at your cost ratios. You, you, you're basically figuring it out all the time. And we need to pay credit and really start to think in many ways about the informal sector in that light. Absolutely. You know, I always find a huge problem with the idea, and many people say this, that we don't own the economy because we've always thought of the economy as the buildings and sanction or the mines. So, you know, we want to own the economy of this country. That's the language we use because yeah. it's something there rather than something here. Our own economic activity, our activities, our production, our trading, our interrelations with people as it relates to, you know, um, <clears throat> this economic system. And I think that's where you are quite right when you talk about, you know, it's the gogo or the accountant or the miner. Because actually the economy is all our efforts and our hard work and our productive and trading uh, things of value that we all create and put together, we call it an economy. And part of the big problem, of course, about the South African economy as it were, is that many, many people are left out of that system. Yes. So many of them are not even in the informal economy. But the informal economy is an interesting part of our lives because, anyway, it is the so-called, you know, and unappreciated, unrecognized um, part of our productive uh, activity, our daily efforts, because many times it is seen as less than. It is not, it's the, It's an outside, it's a second economy. But it's critically important because actually it is the building blocks of how people actually by themselves create things. They, act, they participate, they are active. And one of the worst um, things we've done in South Africa is to actually think about it as almost a, um, a, a you know, a, a sad part of as a failure. You know, if you're in the informal economy, you're a failure, you're not particularly to be recognized because the main thing we want is that you must be registered and be this big person and, you know, and recognized only when you become part of 
the so-called mainstream economy. And I think that has been a big problem because it actually underplays people's efforts on a daily basis uh, and their ability. And and let's be frank, I mean, I heard a stat the other day that said that something like 70% of the globe's um, uh, economy is in fact the informal economy. I may have my number just slightly wrong or slightly 70 or 80 or 60 or whatever, but it was an extremely high number. And once you start to think of that, it almost feels like we need to shift the lens and maybe, maybe for a while, take the focus off the formal sector. And as you say, look at where we do own the economy in so many different ways and look at how we can improve that particular space because so many people are in that space. I mean, it's interesting actually that you call it the informal economy because many people who are in the informal economy, actually trade in goods from the formal economy, right? So you go and see, um, you know, people selling on the streets, sweets, chips um, that come from big companies. They sell, you know, um, their base products, all sorts of things that would have been uh, produced in the formal economy. Mm. And so that's interesting because I think, you know, thinking about it, you can have this part, and we say the formal economy stops here, and everything, even though it has been produced in the formal economy, it now suddenly becomes informal because it is not recognized. And I think this is um, one of the key things because actually it's the part where we actually disenfranchise people. Yeah, exactly. Because we think of them, you know, we this is the structure, and if you are not in the structure, you are outside the union. So even though actually your efforts are very, very much a big contributor well, I'm thinking of the, um, uh, is, is it called the FCMG? Is it FCMG? Fast, what uh, you would know. What is the sector where they make um, fast food product, etc.? Fast moving goods. Fast moving goods. F, what's it? FMG. The FMG mm-hmm. sector. So I'm thinking of the FMG sector. And I know, for ex- I mean, as you say, that there are so many large FMG companies. And they, what they're doing is they're selling to people who are then selling on to you and me or to whoever. And that is part of a, it's, A, it's part of like a huge value chain, but B, it's also part of shifting between the sectors and making, in the end, it is, as you say, one economy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the critical things um, that uh, I, I admit this, I admit this freely, because one of the things um, that, you know, you see, especially in government, they want to formalize the informal economy, you know, people must register, people must have, uh, you know, numbers and all of this. And yeah. for a long time, um, I had believed that, you know, leave them alone, these people are doing fine, don't get, you know, big government in terms of actually trying to formalize them. But one of the problems we faced during the COVID-19 crisis is that because they are not registered and they're actually almost on the outside of the periphery, we couldn't find them for the purposes of support, you know, all this government support. And I think that actually that means that there is something there that we ought to be doing actually in terms of the protections that the informal economy does not get, even though they generate so much yeah. um, of the value that is actually in the uh, in the formal economy. Uh, you know, because they produce all of these things at Palmolive and all the soaps and all the, and they end up there on the sweets and the Cadbury. They end up right at the bottom when they're actually being sold to people they, on a daily basis, going yeah. to buses out and all of that. And they don't have the protection that they should have because of their contribution. And I think that's a very important thing because we still think of them as informal, even with that big contribution. You may, um, there's a, well, you probably know it, but just for our listeners, there's a very good website, Weago, W-I-E-G-O, 
and uh, that focuses on that entire sector and very, very good narratives coming out of there. Thanks very much to our listener, FMCG. Couldn't get that one out fast, moving consumer goods. Also to Carabo, who uh, sent us a wonderful cartoon portraying the nuances of um, equity, justice and equality. I really appreciate that. We'll try and tweet that out as well. You know, um, Auntie, it was really weird when you sent your book through to us and you said that the book that you're thinking about a lot at the moment is none other than Kate Raworth's Donut Economics. And we've had her on the show because we are fascinated in how that particular, um, uh, I don't, what would you call it, that particular system is, mm. is really an interesting system. I wonder if you could explain to us uh, what Donut Economics is in relation to uh, Kate Raworth's work. I, I'm still, this book was recommended to me by um, Portia Derby of Transmet, of course, from Indela Media as well. And she kept saying, have you read this book? You must read this book. You must read yeah. And finally, I read, I, you know, I got it. And I've been list- reading and also listening to the po- to the to um, to it uh, as I do my jogging. And one of the things, I, I still yet to go back to the whole donor system, but I think one of the key things that um, is raised in this book is actually all the things and the belief systems and the, the the images we have about the way the world works having been actually put into our minds by you know the big thinkers of the world, the theorists, the, the historians, the economists, the philosophers, and we have accepted them the way they are. And over many many years, things of course have changed. And one of the points she makes in the book, and I think this is very very interesting, that over if we think about, you know, the the economic system is supposed to have households, as she says, uh, you know, um, government, the you know the, uh, the 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 banks, and the, one other. And one of the things we don't ever do is in that system we don't look into the households and actually what happens there. And uh, there's a lot of work that's being done actually now that emerges about actually how this system has been so simplified uh, into one um, little diagram that we've accepted for a long time, but if you look into this, inside those uh, parts of those diagrams, and this is the thing that we don't do about the complexity and the way actually value is created, how people interrelate, how women have been left outside, uh, mm. how um, even though they actually contribute quite significantly, but actually, you know, they are, because of the way we structure and we think about the world, and I think it relates very much to this discussion we just had about the informal and formal economy, because our descriptions are old and aged, and they actually do not um, represent or reflect our world as it has been, as it is now. And I think you know, so the you know the theories that are old that were about you know what the world was in the 1600s, what the population was, is a very different population that we have now, and that is a significant important thing about thinking about the world. So this work actually is. It's challenging us to rethink and relook at the world, relook at the economy and what we call economics, and actually rethink the different structures and systems which actually people work in and advantage or disadvantage many of us. Do you think we could move into a post-capitalist world? No, actually, you know, when I was thinking about that, you know, Nelson Mandela is uh, was when you know he was released in 1990. He had gone on a tour in the U.S. and he was in one of his uh, Town halls in the US, and somebody asks him, Are you going to follow a capitalist world? Are you going to socialist? And, and he says, Well, for us, it's not about what you name it, as he said, 
if uh, doesn't matter whether the cat um, is black or white, as long as it catches the mouse. I think we've been very much caught up in what we name things, whether we call it mm. capitalist or socialist, and yeah. not so much actually about thinking about how these things work, how things should work, and actually finding ways that things work optimally. So we're always stuck in these big definitions and ideologies. We need to really move past that. So, I mean, there is, capitalism doesn't really exist in the way it, it was defined. So you can think about China as a sort of, you know, yeah. um, uh, communist country, a socialist, but very much a capitalist uh, system. Absolutely, in ways in yeah. They work. Yeah. Uh, so I think we have to think about it. You know, the U.S., uh, you know, very, very afraid of being a socialist country, but with a huge social um, uh, system. You know, in South Africa, so we have to actually think about what are the outcomes that we want. And when we define those outcomes, then we go back and say, how do we actually get there? So it's, it's a huge thing that we're always stuck in, whether it's capitalism or it's not, because we're being left behind by those, because we're stuck in the definitions and we're being left behind actually in the work and the outcomes that we want. Because these the way the world works no longer works in the simple form of the, the, the market economy. Or So I think we need to get past the ideas and those kinds of discussions and think what are the outcomes that we want and then try very much to build ways in which we get there. Yeah. Our guest is Tanti Pai, economist, opinion, uh, opinionist, columnist, and uh, looking at different ways of looking at uh, the numbers of our country and the economy. So much more to talk in that book that we mentioned earlier, Kate Raworth's Donut Economic, Economics, and it's, it's well worth uh, taking a look at that. Some fascinating stuff coming out there. 9.30, Zai is in the studio with the sport. How beautiful is that? <laughs> Tanti Pai, as our guest, you chose it. Ah, I never know how to say her surname. Sarah, is it Barrel? I never know how to say it. I don't know. (laughs) But what a perfect little bit of slow radio that is, hey? It's fantastic. There's so many, uh, much of the music that I've enjoyed over the years. Some of it very meaningful, some of it just, you know, running with it. It's fantastic. Oh, just thank you. Thank you so much for that. That's really fabulous. Auntie, before we go to your first guest, there's something I wanted to just ask you quickly, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately, is how we measure um, a country's success. And I know that the economist Joseph Stiglitz said that we need to move past the GDP and try to find a much broader, um, I suppose, measure of sustainability. What's your take on that? And how, how do we, I mean, is it always going to come down to the GDP or can we find very different ways of doing it? Um, this is a great question because actually in the book um, that we're talking about is a big, one of the big questions around how we measure um, a, a, you know, our our a country's, I guess, success and progress. And I think the main thing that we are trying to do, I guess, all the time is to measure progress, um, you know, people's achievements and what we're doing so that we can actually tell whether or not how we need to, whether or not we need to do more, we need how the, what interventions we need. And that's why I suspect uh, GDP growth and GDP itself is a problem because it's an aggregate and aggregating is almost like, I guess, generalizing, you know, because it tells us something about how we are progressing. And many countries have progressed by GDP, but a lot of people have, you know, but the conditions of people in the same country will not be the same. So if you think about a place like Angola, 
that, you know, for many years has been seen as, you know, big growth, five, six, seven percent growth. And they can achieve that actually by just pumping out more oil and mm. building more buildings. But a lot of people, if you go to Angola, you see the kind of grinding poverty, people in the streets, hungry, you know, suffering. And you would think, well, surely that number is a problem because it does not really actually tell us much about the human condition and human progress. And I think we need to find the kinds of numbers that tell uh, the kinds of measures that tell us what is happening and where we need to improve so that actually everybody, um, you know, is participating, uh, is, is reaching their best potential. Um, and then I guess in the most important sense, you know, progressing, you know, I mean, I think one of the things we most want, and it's well-defined in South Africa, that we want every human being a South African to reach their highest potential. Yeah, and exactly. that is very difficult to reflect in GDP and many people have been left behind. And actually it's misleading in many ways because sometimes we will talk about, you know, South Africa is not progressing if you compare it to Kenya because Kenya is going at 5% and South Africa at 2%. But, you know, if you think about it, you know, the size of the South African economy and the size of the Kenyan economy are quite far apart. And 2% mm. here is a huge number relative to uh, 5% uh, in Kenya. So if the U.S. economy goes by 2%, they outpace South Africa 5% on any day. And so it does not tell us much about actually the progress we are making. We can we make these sort of spurious kinds of comparisons. So we need better numbers to tell us how people are actually progressing and how we may want to work together to intervene so that people are doing better. GDP has not been able to do that. Not that it's a failure in itself, but it, 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 it is not the best measure we could use. There's a, there's a fantastic book, and I've completely forgotten the title, but it's written by a Dutch journalist um, where she talks about how numbers lie to you and how you can use numbers in ways of smoke and mirrors. And I think that the numbers of the GDP are, you know, they don't lie to you, they tell you what is, but they also don't tell you what isn't. And um, that is, of course, the challenge. It doesn't say, well, your binding constraint, for example, might be early childhood development or whatever the case may be. Dante, your first guest, Nompumalelo Runji, she uh, used to work for the German Development Agency and she now runs the Democracy Works Foundation. Talk to us about why you've chosen Nompumalelo. So I thought one of the things that discussing what's happening now, so I met um, Nompumalelo, I, I, um, I think it's a foundation, a German foundation or development agency, I can't remember, but they used to do, um, uh, they would collect young people at universities, uh, these sort of called, I guess, um, formerly black universities or disadvantaged universities, the Fortes, um, Nelson Mandela, to actually talk to the students who are, many of them are actually quite bright. And that program I found quite interesting because it really spoke to actually developing young men. And I, we, I used to fight them. So I think I was there for three sessions of three years and we used to fight with the students because they had one sense of thinking, one sense of being, and we used to fight about how actually we need to think as the few percent, uh, the young people. So that program that we, she was running, um, I found really, really interesting in the sense that as program manager, she was bringing these young people and exposing them in general respect to the different kinds of thinking, yeah. different kinds of um, you know critical thinking. And so that's where I first met her. But obviously now, uh, 
ran into it at the Inzilamitis analysis as a trustee and also, you know, running this democracy. And I think, you know, very, very close to the discussions we are having or should be having, and especially as we think about our democracy and how we all fit in. So let me just declare my interest here. I am a pro bono trustee as well of Ndlulamiti. So that comment um, with regards to Nompumulelo and also Kanti as uh, trustees of Ndlulamiti is one that is noted. Nompumulelo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you, Kanti. It's good to be on. So let's talk uh, about the Democracy Works Foundation that you are currently um, running at the moment. What are the outcomes that you'd like to see from the foundation? Um, Okay, just a correction. So I don't run the uh, Democracy Works Foundation. I'm currently a project manager for a project that is uh, looking to promote the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Governance. Uh, Across 11 countries, we're working together on a on a, a continental in a continental consortium and really the aim of, of democracy works is that we want democracy across the african continent to work better yeah. and so we really are committed to supporting particularly civil society and civic initiatives uh, that that seek to empower uh, ordinary people as well as uh, to hold uh, governments to account for achieving the ideals of, of democracy. And so that's what Democracy Works Foundation is really about. We also work uh, with young people. There's a Democracy uh, Works Foundation Academy that is very similar to the program that uh, I ran at the Friedrich Ebert Stifting um, that brings in young people who have shown themselves to be committed uh, to uh, changing their communities and actually working with their communities to make a difference. And so uh, these young people are gathered together uh, across the country, across the nine provinces, and they, uh, you know, attend various workshops that, uh, you know, uh, empower them on un- better understanding what democracy is, uh, how it is that democracy empowers people, and really is uh, aimed at um, equipping young people to use their talent, skills, and their agency yeah. to make a difference in their communities. So that that's really uh, the work that, that, that I've been committed to for, for the uh, larger part of my of my career. So, so Nompumulelo, I mean, you, we, we get you then, of course, at a really interesting time in our own uh, voting storyline or voting narrative here in South Africa. And I'd love to hear from both of you the, your feelings as we move forward, we've heard um, what the outcomes were of the form of the judge uh, with regards to the elections this year. How do you feel about that? And when we talk about democracy, how, does, uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I think it's uh, an important uh, decision um, or recommendation that was made by uh, uh, Justice Dehang Museneke. Of course, uh, elections are not just about what happens on voting day. Yes. They're also about what happens and transpires before that. And I think the consideration is whether or not uh, political parties will have the space uh, to campaign and be able to yeah. persuade the electorate, but at the same time, whether the electorate has sufficient uh, you know, freedom of, of movement, etc., to be able to engage with political parties as well. 
So we need to keep in mind uh, that we need to protect uh, civil liberties and political rights so that when election day comes, we can actually be able to say that truly these were free and fair elections. So I take the point uh, that the, the, the special inquiry uh, into postponement of the elections. Of course, we we having these elections uh, uh, under you know the cloud of the COVID nineteen mm. pandemic, which has really uh, you know limited uh, some of those rights and and freedoms that we we generally enjoy under the constitution. We are under lockdown. Um, you know there are certain precautions that we need to take, and so so the the level of engagement in political activity. Uh, has really been diminished. Yeah. And so if we really are seeking to have uh, an electoral process that really does uh, uh, speak to fairness, uh, competitiveness, we would need, I think, to, to rethink the modalities of that. And, and a postponement does seem to be a fair um, um, recommendation. In what, my do we, view. what do we do? I mean, we understand that this pandemic may very well be, and everybody is saying this globally, and nationally, the pandemic becomes endemic. That um, I mean, the, the desire and the hope, I assume, would be that by February next year, when we have the elections, that we've many more people have been vaccinated, and thus the safety and security of all is supported. But what do we do if that is not necessarily the case, and we get to February? I mean, this pandemic is just going to roll on and roll. Well, that's my opinion. It's going to roll on for a long, long time. How do we resolve that? Yeah, that's a that's an important consideration. Of course, uh, not only uh, is the pandemic a challenge in South Africa, the pandemic, as as, as many have noted, has just uh, amplified the disparities of, or that we already have across the country and, and, and the inequality. And so, of course, there's this idea that we just have to move everything online and just get people to be more okay with using, uh, you know, online platforms to register and to participate. But the reality is that we still have a major gap between those who have uh, consistent and reliable internet connectivity and those who don't. And we we begin to see again the inequality and the divide between uh, those who are poorer, who find themselves uh, in in rural and and, and peri-urban areas versus those who find themselves in in, in cities and uh, and towns uh, where they're living a predominantly middle-class uh, yeah. lifestyle. And so uh, with the pandemic persisting, and if we do move to the, these online platforms, we're going to have major questions about the competitiveness and fairness um, of, of, of the electoral process. Uh, but it is something that we need to, to, to consider and think about because we can't, of course, postpone the elections indefinitely. Uh, uh, it would also depend on, like you say, uh, how, how fast the rollout of the vaccination program is and, and where we are in February. But, uh, you know, would, would we have the certainty to know at, at which point uh, enough people would have been vaccinated? And, and that's, those are questions that are up in the air right now. So we do need to go to a break, guys. But when we come back, I have a question for both of you. And Nompumulelo talks to your work with youth programming. Um, Antia talks to your work with young people as well. If we're going to move forward and we're going to let get youngsters, and by youngsters, I mean, we could be talking about teenagers, not necessarily kids who are in tertiary education. We could be talking about kids who are still in um, senior school or whatever they, whatever it is called now. What, what are the ways of teaching 
um, our world to them. Um, looking at things like economics, looking at things like democracy. I mean, at, in, in, at university, it would be that, is it called PP, um, what's it? Um, philosophy, politics, and internet. I can't, I can't remember. I mean, it's like a while back. But like, how would one teach that? And how would one do that differently? We do have to go to a break, but I'd love to know from both of you a way forward with regards to that. The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant. Our guest is Tanti Pai. His guest is Nompumalelo Runji. And uh, the question that we're going to close off with is uh, a way forward question. And it's not about uh, how we educate uh, the broad public, but how do we use youth programs to teach things like democracy and the like? Um. Well, Michelle, I think maybe uh, that the previous question you asked about the, the elections and whether we postpone it or not is, is actually sticks to this um, very closely for me. I thought that, you know, um, as an American journalist, editor, um, on my age of the new reply, the guy called um, Leon Wizard here, and he made this point about democracies that, you know, we are societies of opinion. So, and by that we mean, you know, that on a day, democracies work by what people think about, you know, the government, this party, that party, uh, how they actually view the world, and their basic opinions. And so we need to attend very importantly to the quality of opinion in a democracy. Otherwise, this thing doesn't work. And so when I think about that in our elections, and some of the arguments that have been made about postponing it, tell me something about how we are really intent on the ways we have always done things. So, you know, we're not going to be able to do, um, to change people's minds, to convince people if we don't do it in big rallies or, you know, maybe perhaps door to door in ways that they have that touch. But the world is changing and we have to, rec- we are now recognizing, you know, the so-called fourth industrial revolution, the way we actually interact and how everybody gets information and how we actually you know, inform people and change their, you know, attend to their opinions and educate them about whether the party, its views, its manifesto. And I think the decision says to me that we are still quite stuck in the old ways of doing things and that we have to sort of do, you know, democracy the way we've always done it. Yet we know things have changed, that we're not going to go back to the old world, even after COVID, if we, there is such mm. a world as a post-COVID world. And so it's... It's a bit concerning because actually part of the things that we're trying to do is also to reimagine a world after COVID, to reimagine a world through the rest of COVID, as I guess it may live with us for a very long time. Um, The future of work, the way we're going to interact with each other, the technology, all of these things that are coming are all are here and actually the ways in which we have to move forward. And it's a bit concerning that um, we, this whole thing is about how... Uh, you know, are we going to attend to informing people, educate people, share our thoughts, our views outside of the old ways we've always been doing things, yeah. I guess. And I think that's a concern. And I think that speaks directly to then how we think about young people and how we're going to attend to how they are informed, how they are inspired, how they are supported. Um, and, you know, and that is an important question because they... They have to actually try and bring them to the party and they have to recognize themselves 
that, you know, our world and their world has changed. And I suspect some of us who think about the world may be behind them, but we may actually be lagging behind in terms of actually assisting them to leap forward because it's not a, it is really, really an important part about what young people, the kind of support we should give them and how we view the world as those who think we are interested in young people. Nompromalelo. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so on your question about how do we, uh, you know, educate uh, young people about democracy and the like, in my experience, I think the most important thing is to really uh, teach critical thinking. Yes. Um, young people already have a sense of how the world works. They have their own opinions, like the point that Kante already made about, you know, how how democracies are driven by opinions and uh, they have opinions uh, <clears throat> they have experiences of, of life and and in fact they have experiences of uh, their own experiences of, of democracy at a local level and I think what is important is to combine that experience those opinions with um, you know uh, uh, helping them and understand where to go for information uh, you know, the seminal readings, uh, you know, in, in the development of, of theories, uh, the various theories of, of democracy um, and democratic practice and, and help them to incorporate that into their own activism, uh, into their own thinking about how to make uh, changes in society. Because young people are energetic and they're really committed uh, to, to building, a, you know, an inclusive uh, society where, uh, they have access uh, to to opportunities, but also to resources. Um, and so I think that's the most important thing. Uh, but also on the point of, uh, you know, understanding that the world is changing, is that we have to create uh, um, an enabling environment for young people. Yeah. So they, they are tech savvy. They know how to use technology. But how can we make that more accessible for them, cheaper for them, uh, you know, and, and, and teach them ways of, of using that technology uh, as platforms for, for influence? Um, and I think that those are some of the things that we really need to be, be thinking about. I mean, in the short term, um, the, the postponement of the election, I think, does open up room for for the necessary changes in terms of how we engage politically to happen yeah. but that's not just going to be the the job of the IEC and the government uh we're going to have to 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 look at uh you know at, uh ICT um <clears throat> and how it is that those services are, are provided and how they can be expanded so that more people can can have an opportunity to participate Nompumalelo, thank you so much for joining us, Nompumalelo Runji, and uh, her, uh, the, the guest presenter on the show, Ganti Pai. Ganti, thank you so much. Uh, you've really raised some very interesting things. You know, I'm thinking of what you've both said about education as well, and I'm thinking of that fantastic project, Play Africa, where they get uh, teach young kids to work um, at the Constitution Hill and, and, and even in the courts as well and focus on learning about the Constitution, learning about democracy. There are so many different ways that one can do it. Ganti, you get the closing words and I suppose uh, the question for the closing words are, are you positive? Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that <laughs> <laughs> not every day, but definitely I think that one of the key things I'm positive about and I think, you know, we have to do, as uh, Nobel was saying, is that 
we have, you know, everybody thinks about the future, you know, the work, the future of work, the fourth industrial revolution, this thing that's coming at us that's going to destroy jobs, that's going to leave us. But it also gives us opportunity for, uh, to actually take it upon ourselves to, you know, allow young people to come forward and take part in actually solving problems through this, these platforms. And I think the question is, how are, they, are we going to allow for that space and empower them to be able to actually take this moment, not something that's coming at them, but something that they can engage with so that they can actually move forward. And I'm sort of positive in that in some of the work that I've seen happening and some of the work we are trying to do um, on, the, uh, on this. So I'm very positive. Glenty Pye, thank you so much for joining us and a fascinating conversation around the world we want to live in and the world as we move forward. That's it from us. We're going to say goodbye. No longer good morning. It's 10 o'clock. It's time for the news.